I realize that I'm very good at getting up here and not remembering to explain who I am. So my name is Kristen Wells, and I am the student pastor. I work with our 6th through 12th grade students, and it's my joy and privilege to do that. And every once in a while, I will fill the pulpit for Kyle. Kyle's our lead pastor, and he is not with us this morning. He is traveling back from vacation with his family, and so um, I volunteered to take his spot this morning so that he didn't have to think about it during this week while he was celebrating. So, um, so I'm happy to be up here and get to celebrate this first Sunday of Advent with you. If any of you are familiar with the five love languages, um, one of my love languages is gifts. Yes. It's uh, receiving gifts, but it's also giving gifts. Um, and that is kind of how love languages work, that the way that you like to receive love is the way that you like to give love. And so I love to put myself in the position of a person um, that I'm buying a gift for. I like to think about something that they're going to really love. And I love to listen to those holiday gift guides or look through those holiday gift guides um, where they talk about getting something just right for the person. And so I cause some of you anxiety because... Some of you are really bad gift receivers, and um, you feel pressure when you open a gift because there's this, this pressure of, oh, am I going to have the right reaction? I know my husband feels that way, um, because I'm looking for a particular reaction. I'm looking for you to be just so excited about the gift that I gave you. So I can remember in college, my friend had just gotten his new camera, and he said, Kristen, if we could, I'd like to try out my camera, test out some of the aperture and settings, and I'd like to take a few pictures of you around campus just to see how it works and see if I can get a handle on it. So I got my picture taken a few different places around campus, and there were a few images that I really liked. And of course, being a poor college student, the holidays rolled around, and I was trying to think of something that my dad would like. Well, my dad is the sentimental type, and so I was trying to be resourceful, and I thought, hey, I'll just take one of these pictures, put it in a frame, he can put it on his desk to remember me at work or in his home study, whatever he wants to do. And so um, every year there's a gift that I'm giving that I get the most excited about, that I'm the most thrilled about giving. And so it doesn't have to be something that's monetarily a lot, but um, just something that I think is valuable, that I think that the person will really appreciate. And this year, this framed picture became one of my favorite gifts that I was going to be giving. Well, I got home from school. I lived, my college was about four and a half hours away, and um, I got busy catching up with friends and spending time with family, and I fell asleep on Christmas Eve without wrapping this gift. And my mom wakes me up, you know, in the middle of the night, and she says, Kristen, um, it's, you know, you're probably going to need to go up to your room. And um, I was like, oh, my goodness, Mom, I, I totally forgot I didn't wrap Dad's gift. I said, there's this framed picture under the couch. Could you please, yeah, sure, no problem. Just go on up to bed, and I'll take care of it. And so the next day, we wake up, and we're exchanging gifts. And it comes time for my dad to open the gift, the gift of the year. And so he unwraps the box, and he pulls out this big bag of jelly beans. 
And he's like, oh, jelly beans, my favorite. Well, come to find out, my mom had wanted to put something in the box that would kind of protect the gift that I was giving, like packing peanuts. And so um, I think the packing peanuts were a little bit more distracting to my dad than my mom had thought they would be. And I'm like, yeah, Dad, there's another gift under there. And he said, oh, a picture. How nice. Now, where did you find these jelly beans? <laughs> Obviously more excited about the candy than my actual gift. Talk about the wrong reaction. That is not quite the reaction that I was looking for. It's like if you watch a little kid, if you've ever mailed anything to a little kid, something in bubble wrap, and sometimes they're more enamored or as enamored with popping the bubbles on the bubble wrap than they are with the actual gift, right? And sometimes I think that we can be a bit like that. We can lose our focus and get so excited by the packaging that we miss the real gift. So this morning we've entered into this season of Advent and the Millikans so kindly read for us what Advent is. It's this season marked as, the, as beginning the fourth Sunday before Christmas. And Advent celebrates a time of waiting and preparing. And this is a really special season in the church because it talks about the coming of a king. Our series this Advent is Born the King. But sometimes I think we get more exciting more excited about the packaging of this holiday than the actual gift that it can be to us, even in the preparation. And don't get me wrong, I love holiday baking and shopping all the sales, but my hope for us today is that we dive into the scripture this first Sunday of Advent, that it will be a time to set us up well, to focus on the gift of the season. And not just the flowery, consumerist packaging that it comes in. I don't want us to be so distracted by the fun of the bubble wrap, but really to reveal, at the risk of sounding like a Hallmark card, the reason for this season. So this morning, we are going to be reading out of the lectionary. The lectionary is a calendar that the universal church uses to remain faithful to the scriptures. And it's used so that over the course of three years, we have the opportunity to get a picture of who God is from cover to cover of our Bibles. And it's a way also to unify churches around the world so that as we read this passage this morning, I want you to know that there are churches around the world that are diving into this same piece of scripture and asking God to speak to them this morning. And as we examine this passage, I like to look first at the author of this book. We're going to be reading the words of Jesus from the book of Matthew. So Matthew was one of the original 12 disciples or followers of Jesus called by Jesus. While many of Jesus' disciples were fishermen, but Matthew was a tax collector. And there was a very special kind of hate for tax collectors. In Holman's Dictionary, it says that a tax collecting was a political office created by the Romans to help them collect taxes. 
And they were held in really low esteem because of the excessive profits that they made. You can think about how much we hate paying taxes now. Well, they hated it even more then because for the privilege of taking my tax money from me, a tax collector would have required another percentage. So they'd essentially be paying a tax collector for taking their money. And Jesus was condemned for, for hanging out with these types of people. Jesus called Matthew to live a different life and to follow him. So Matthew, because he's one of Jesus' closest friends, gets to hear and record what Jesus taught. And Matthew, as a Jewish man himself, is particularly concerned for other Jews. And so he tries to write in such a way that the Jews grasp the importance of living their lives in devotion to God and spreading of the gospel or the good news of Jesus. And Matthew was clear that we, as followers of Jesus, are called to join the mission of God in the world. So as you are able this morning, will you stand with me for the reading of the gospel? Matthew 24, 36 through 44. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming... He would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. The word of God for the people of God, and we all say together, thanks be to God. Lord, in the silence of this moment, we pray that you would reveal your truth to us today and work your will in our lives. Amen. You may be seated. As we read the gospel this morning, there is this obvious idea of surprise and mystery about the coming of Jesus. See, in the Christian faith, we believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that he came to dwell among us, that he came to be Emmanuel, God with us. One of the most commonly quoted pieces of scripture is found in John's account. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. That they won't die, but they will have eternal life. And as Christians, we believe that this happened. That Jesus came, that he did die, and that he rose again defeating death, conquering the sin of all of those that put their faith in him. 
but also that though his time on earth was a real event in history, that he ascended, that he's no longer with us walking this earth, that he sent his spirit, but he is no longer here in a, in a very physical form like I am standing here before you. But that one day that will change and that he is coming back. Now I told you when I started that we would be reading out of the lectionary passage this morning, but I want to be really transparent with you that when I saw what, what we would be reading this morning, I was maybe not as thrilled as I should have been. And this isn't the passage that I would have picked to be examining this morning. As you'll notice, things look a little bit different around here than they did last week when you came. There's greenery, and there's trees, and there's all of this decor, and I love all that stuff. But if we skip right to Christmas, we miss something. The church does several things to try to help us unveil the wonder of the waiting, the beauty of Advent. We've talked about the importance of focus. Well, as you've noticed, and as I've talked about, there's an Advent wreath sitting here. First, we light the hope candle. The next week, we'll focus on joy and light the joy candle. The next week, the love candle. And then the peace candle. candle. And then finally, the Christ candle. But as I said, this Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. And we, we lit a purple candle to symbolize hope. The hope that we have in waiting for the coming of a king, for the coming of Jesus. And I get that when we're talking about Mary and Joseph. I can put myself in the shoes of the Jewish people who are waiting for a king to rescue them. And there's excitement there. Because I know what happens. I know the secret. I know that Jesus doesn't come to conquer with armor like the king that they're expecting, that Jesus comes in the form of a baby, perhaps the most disarming way that he could appear. I mean, if you, if you think of what might have caught them more off guard than their king being a baby, because what do people do when they see babies? Aww. I don't have any kids, but I know my, several of my friends do. And for them, I know that it changes their lives. That their child becomes the center of their world. And I often hear new mothers and fathers say, I didn't know I could love anyone this much. There is so much hope and anticipation of a child, whether you are carrying a baby or you're adopting, right? And there is as much anticipation for Jesus' coming that is unlike any other birth because it brings hope, not just to Mary and Joseph, but it brings hope to all people. But Advent doesn't just celebrate the anticipation of a king 2,000 years ago. It celebrates the anticipation of a king even now. And that's what I often miss during this season. And that's where we find ourselves today in our lectionary passage. But to be completely honest, 
the way that I've often been taught this passage has diminished hope for me. I've been under the teachings of, of preachers that have, with great fire in their voice, asked me, if you died tomorrow, do you know where you'd go? If Jesus came back today, what would happen to you? I don't know if any of you have ever watched or read the Left Behind series, but this kind of teaching did not inspire hope in me. What it communicated to me as a young girl was that I wasn't good enough for God, that I'd be left behind, and that's a terrible feeling for somebody that already struggles with imposter syndrome. Like, even though I'm trying my best, I'm doing my best, there's this idea that I'm going to get found out, that I'm not as good as, as I seem to be. And I know that some of you can relate to this. And so I wrestled with this scripture this week. I dove in and I asked God to help this be for us a message of hope. So it's been my prayer this week that fear would be dispelled. Because I don't believe that the Lord desires for us to live in fear. I want you to remember that Matthew is recording the words of Jesus as he speaks to his followers. And I want, I want you to listen as I read this text again. And we're going to unpack the meaning this morning. Matthew 24, 36 through 44. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus refers to himself in this text as the Son of Man, which is a phrase common to the last days, this apocalyptic idea of end times. And again, that's something that's always made me a little bit uneasy because of how it was taught to me. The Son of Man is a phrase used in Daniel's dream, dream long before the time of Jesus. And Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And this is a picture that the Jewish people would know really well. That there would be a rescuer, that there would be someone who would come for them, that he would build a kingdom 
for his people that would never be destroyed. In verse 37, it says, As in the days of Noah, so will be, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus was referring to this Old Testament story along, long before his time on earth. When God became very displeased with the corruption of his people, but he finds righteousness in Noah and his family. And he instructs Noah to build this ark. And he sends a flood on the earth. But those that are in this ark or this big boat are the ones that survive the flood because they're obedient to God, right? And so Jesus uses this example because it's really very familiar to the people that he's talking to, to his followers. And this story is not a new one to the people that are sitting under his teaching. And I don't know, I don't think, that he's talking about the last days this way because there's going to be a flood. That's not part of any other revelation about the second coming of Jesus. In fact, God establishes this covenant with Noah where he promises that he will never destroy the earth with a flood. I have to wonder, what do you think people were thinking as Noah began to build this ark? And I'm wondering, did they really pay attention? Did they really focus? Did they really notice? Jesus says in verse 38, For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying, giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. I'm not sure that Jesus is condemning the activities that the people were engaging in. The eating and drinking, the marrying and giving in marriage. I don't think he would have expected the people of Noah's day to abstain from food and drink. I don't think he would have expected them to be single and celibate. What I think Jesus is looking to point out to his followers is that The people were going about their normal lives, doing what they'd always done, missing what they could have been a part of because of their failure to focus. Perhaps if the people would have cared to notice, God would have given them the opportunity to be obedient as well. Maybe what Jesus is saying is that in these last days, while we wait for his return, We have the opportunity to be obedient. We have every opportunity to be obedient. And likewise, we will have every opportunity to be distracted and to get swept up into the everyday moments of life and to totally miss the point. Jesus goes on to give another example. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken And the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. So Jesus talks about these jobs that might have been common to his listeners. Jobs that must be done in order to provide for their families. The men are in the field doing some sort of labor. The women are grinding at the handmill to make their grain useful. These are their occupations, though they could also be considered chores. Either way, there are things that have to be done. 
they may be comparable to us taking time to prepare a meal for our family or washing and folding laundry or even going to work every day. They're things that have to be done. And I don't believe that Jesus is asking his followers not to do those things. But what he may be saying, rather, is that there's a difference between these sets of people, one set, one person in each set of individuals. One is caught up in the mundane work of daily life and focused on themselves, while the other is aware of a greater purpose, right? And it changes the way that they do things. And lastly, Jesus uses another analogy in this passage. He says, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would have not have let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is perhaps the image for some that is most difficult to understand because maybe you or someone you know has had an experience with a thief coming into your house. There may be these feelings of being violated. Someone is coming into your space and invading it, and it can make you feel unsafe in your own home. My husband Wesley and I learned how ill-prepared we were for this type of encounter. When I was away with our students at summer camp, and it was, um, it was during game seven of the Stanley Cup finals, and we had a group of students gathered into the dining hall for, to watch this monumental game, and Wesley's at home, and my husband is a, a huge sports fan. And so we're both watching these, this game from different locations, and we're texting back and forth. So, and, I, and I texted him as, you know, we come to the end, and it's a nail-biter. And I texted him, and I said, you know, I sent him some celebratory text about how excited I was for the Blues. Um, Wesley's not a huge hockey fan, but I know that he likes to engage me in sports conversation. And they won, and... I didn't hear back from him, like at the most crucial point of the game. And so over the course of the next several hours, I mean, I thought it was possible that he had fallen asleep, but I tried calling over 10 times, and I heard nothing but a voicemail message. And after several hours went by, I still wasn't hearing from him. And that wasn't like him. It was late, but usually... Wesley would, again, engage me in any type of sports conversation that I wanted to have. And it was midnight when my worry got the best of me. And so I got in contact with Bill Kramer. Bill Kramer uh, goes to this church, and he lives not too far from us. And so I asked Bill to go over and make sure that Wesley was okay. And according to Bill, when he arrived at the house, it was completely dark, he knocked on doors and windows, and then finally a light came on in the house. And so Bill proceeded to knock on the front door until a tired and confused Wesley answered the door. 
And he said, hey, Kristen's trying to get a hold of you. You need to call her. And Wesley called immediately and explained that he had just fallen asleep, that he'd simply fallen asleep in the middle of our messaging conversation. And I was partially embarrassed <laughs> that I had made such a big deal about it that I had overreacted. And I explained that my mind had gone to the worst places and I was desperate. And I hadn't known what else to do. Putting myself in Wesley's shoes, I, I knew that he was probably freaked out that he woke up to someone tapping on the glass of his bedroom. <laughs> like, I'm thinking about myself, and I'm thinking, would I have had the courage to open the front door? And I, I knew that he wouldn't have had a weapon of any sort handy. And so he said, well, yeah, I was really freaked out, and I... Um, I just tried to find the thing that I thought would cause the most damage, and so I just took your big Bible dictionary, and <laughs> I was prepared to, you know, whack over the head anybody that didn't come in peace. I, how prepared he was to do serious damage, I'm not really sure. Um, but it was quickly clear that we needed to have a little bigger security measures in place. But we needed to be on higher alert. And that's what Jesus is saying to his followers. You need to be on alert that my coming could be at any time, at any moment. And I think we often read this section, particularly of this passage, we read it with this attitude of fear because of our experience with thieves and with true crime shows that teaches us to do that. But perhaps Jesus is personifying himself as a thief to symbolize all the things that Jesus wants to strip from us. These preconceived notions about what his kingdom will look like and who will be allowed in. See, Jesus is all about inviting the unlikely people to participate in what he's doing. He is the king that invites tax collectors to sit at his table. He is the king that takes everything we know about social hierarchies and flips it on his head. He makes the last first and the first last. See, this week isn't about fear. This week is about hope. The hope in a king whose kingdom we are invited to participate in building even now. See, I don't believe that heaven is a place in the sky that we will be swept off to. I believe that the new earth is a continuation of a kingdom that God has already started building through us and that we are invited to participate in now. And I believe that if we really lived with this kind of hope for a king that could come back, even momentarily, even before I get finished with this message, it would change the way we lived, it would change the way that we treat people, it would change who we invited to our table. Our preparation would change everything about how we do daily life. 
whether we're washing and folding laundry or going to our office job. So this week of Advent isn't about tapping into a fear that I'm not good enough or that I don't measure up. Because I believe that God's grace, his unlikely favor for people like us, is big enough to cover the ways in which we fall short if we're simply focused. And just as Noah was invited to prepare an ark for rain that had not yet fallen, we are invited to prepare a kingdom for a king who's going to return to us. And just as the man in the field and the woman grinding of the handmill, we are invited to do our everyday life with the knowledge of a greater purpose and allow it to change us. And just as a thief would, we invite Jesus to take from us the things that we hold too tightly to. We invite him to help us grow in the understanding of what the kingdom of God should look like. To shift our things, to shift our thinking from things that are not significant at all to the things that are eternally significant. Advent is a time where we celebrate with great anticipation the coming of a king. Born the king. It's a time to remember the hope in people's hearts as they waited in silence. That over 2,000 years ago, humanity was anticipating the birth of a king with much eagerness. And though Jesus came in a form that was not expected as a little baby, it was exactly what we needed. As I was doing study this week, one thing I heard on a podcast that I was listening to was that by the end of the Advent season, the hope candle will have burned the longest. My prayer for us this Advent is that we may anticipate his return with an equal level of hope in our hearts as the people of God who are waiting for the birth of a king over 2,000 years ago. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we put up our trees and we perfectly place our decor and we celebrate the birth of your son with holiday parties and holiday baking, which we love so much, let us not be so distracted by the fancy consumerist packaging of Christmas, the bubble wrap, the packing peanuts, that we miss the anticipation the beauty of Advent. Lord, we love you and we thank you for a time to gather in your presence and anticipate your coming and gear this new year with that anticipation. In your name I pray, amen.